Hi everyone and welcome to episode 123 of Final Fantasy Union. I'm your host Daryl, and I'm here with Jared. Hello everyone! What is up Daryl? Yeah, not much. Uh, it's interesting that you seem to have appeared on the podcast. How did that happen? Oh man, you know, I had some uh, Phantoma uh, left over from some recent battles. I was like, you know what man, if we're talking about the next game created by the guy who made one of my favorite spin-offs, you know, Tabata and Crisis Core, you know. I, I, I gotta pull out all the stops, man. I gotta be here. Yeah, so Jared fought tooth and nail to get on the second part of our Type Zero special, and he's gonna be talking about all about gameplay, presentation, music. It's gonna be great. Oh, it's gonna be excellent, man. We're, we're gonna talk about all the good things here. So as we've already done the first part of this episode, I'm just gonna skip through some of the fluff. Um, but if you are listening for the first time and you've just come into the second episode, please do go and listen to the first part. Laura and I went all through the story, uh, tried to explain it all in all its glory and complications, and uh, <laughs> I think we did an okay job, but we ended up talking for just over an hour about it. Um, but, I mean, that was very spoiler-heavy. I don't know if there's, there's too many spoilers that are going to come into play in the gameplay and the presentation of music, but um, as it's our special episode, spoilers are fair game. We are going to be talking about spoilers, so if you haven't played Type Zero yet, then I implore you to go and do so before you listen to this show. But if you are listening for the first time, Final Fantasy Union is part of a podcast series called Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts Union. It's presented by the Gaming Union Network. We have a new show coming out every Tuesday in rotation with Kingdom Hearts Union. And we come on the iTunes store, FinalFantasyUnion.com and YouTube.com forward slash FFUnionVids. So without much further ado... I think we should dive straight into the gameplay, Jared. Yes, man. Let, let's get to it, man. This is like the uh, meat of the game. Yes. So, I mean, the, the gameplay itself is actually an evolution of an evolution. Um, so the basis for this particular style of combat was actually developed by Tagatsu Nakazawa. He worked on Final Fantasy X Part Two, And then his gameplay system was evolved for Crisis Core, which was then again evolved... For Type Zero, and as Crisis Core is one of your favorite games, Jared, was was the gameplay something you really enjoyed about Crisis Core? It was at, at first. It was a uh, it was almost a little tad confusing for me at first because since it's an evolutionary step, there are things they do different. After about I won't say an hour into it, I began to pick up on the similarities to Crisis Core. Um, the, the the only bi- biggest difference um, to me it seemed was that. In Crisis Core, all your attacks are basically mapped to a little bar. You have to scroll through with the trigger buttons. But in Crisis Core, they actually mapped pretty much every attack to all the buttons on the controller. So you weren't having to constantly uh, jumping around through menus or whatnot. But it, it had those uh, similar mechanics. And of course, the other big thing that they changed for uh, this version of the battle system was that it's now party-orientated. Whereas in Crisis Core, you just focused on Zack. Now you've got a party of three characters that you can switch between. And they all have extremely different gameplay styles. That, that's right. Until you have really about 15 characters. And I mean, it was different to the point where even though you have three or four longer range gun users, every one of them plays differently. You can't play Cater how you play King. You can't play King how you play Trey. Each character you have to kind of learn all over again with this person. Yeah, so on that note, I mean, at the start of the game, uh, they give you three specific characters. So you start off using Ace because obviously he's kind of the face of the game. And they give you nine and queen for your first couple of missions. Obviously, those guys, again, have quite different styles because, as you mentioned, ace is more of a long-range attacker. Uh, nine is like a kind of a slow dragoon melee, and queen is very much a fast, quick melee character. D- did you find that you kind of um, melded with those initial characters straight away, or did you, or was there one that you in- instantly found a preference for over the others? I, I found a preference for ace, Uh Reason being, he he basically is the middle ground when you think about it. And I don't mean that just in terms of uh, his attack range, but I also mean in terms of like his defenses and his raw attack power. I mean, you have it to where with Queen, even though she's fast, uh, she could die uh, relatively easily. With Nine, you know, he he probably does have the most attack power out of the three, but the dude's slow compared to everyone else. With Ace, uh, I was able to keep my distance. I was able to get attacks out fast. He just felt more balanced. So even when I was stuck with just those three, once I got a feel for those characters, I just stuck with Ace and let the other two do their own thing. Yeah, I think I did the same, actually. And I think the way this game works, and uh, I don't really know how everyone else kind of went through uh, what their experiences were, but I found that 
I kind of stuck to what I knew. So because they gave those three initial characters to me, I kind of stuck with those characters until I was forced to change. And I think that's something that Type Zero does extremely well because there's such a big cast of characters. Death isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it's su- it's such a like a parallel or a, a juxtaposition to the uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen where if Lightning dies, it's game over. Whereas in in Type Zero, if a character dies, it's no big deal. You've got another one that comes in next. But the whole thing is that if you haven't like gained experience with these other characters you get a new character that comes in that you have to then learn how to play on the spot so i I mean i don't know about you but that's how i ended up finding out about all the different characters i'd find like at the beginning i had the ace nine and queen i stuck with them until i started dying with those characters and then i got forced to use other ones and then i kind of started to learn which characters suited my playstyle more just because I was being forced to use them. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience as well with that. Uh, it, it really was when I started dying, that's when I started learning about new characters. And, yeah, of course, when I, sometimes a new character I get would just completely suck, but there would be, well, at least to me anyway, but there would be sometimes I get new characters, like, huh, I didn't do too well with them, but he or she is interesting. Maybe I'll go outside, explore some, and test out just what exactly they could do. And that's how... I would basically, for my teams later, was because of those deaths and having to use a new character, that would introduce me to different play styles I can mix them around with. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, that's how I got introduced to new characters. It's kind of weird because I can't think of another game that really encourages that system where, you know, here's, here's a play style, here's some play styles, um, but there's like 13 others that are very, very different. And yeah, unless you actively look to experiment, which I don't think too many people would do because you just want to progress with the game. Right. But it's when when your characters start dying and you're forced to try these different styles. And, and I think because you're, you'll generally start dying um, either when you're trying to level up and you go through like the five cycles and things start getting harder, or if you're going through a mission. And in the missions, you really don't want to lose because you have to start all the way back at the beginning again. And some of the missions are like, you know, 20 minutes long. Right. So you kind of get this new character. But generally what's happened is that because you've got those, like they say originally, you had those three preferential characters, you will have leveled them up more than anyone else. So when they die, not only do you have to tangle with a character that you've never really used before and aren't familiar with their playstyle, but they're also underleveled. So you have to like go into self-preservation mode and really try and figure out how this thing's going to work. And yeah, sometimes you'll get a character that just dies pretty much straight away because even though you're trying your best, you just can't click and it's such a pressure situation. And you know what? You, it, it is true. It was a little odd with how they treated death in this game because in Final Fantasy up to now, death's always seen as a negative. There's no little silver lining to it. But in this, I guess their balance was that if you die, you're overall score gets decreased but the way they ex- they kind of came up with a clever way of um handling death with the story uh you'll find out later it's like oh well the reason we keep down and coming back to life that's because our phantoma yada 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 and i, I guess that's kind of how they justified the gameplay being that way which it worked i mean you know like, yeah. like we've said you know it got us using other characters it got us learning new play styles so i mean we, we i think we both ended up uh, at the beginning using ace nine and queen just because that's what we were familiar with and i, I didn't really want to venture too far outside of that but i think i the combination when i speak to different people like everyone always ends up with a completely different combination at the end i've never spoken to anyone who uses the same combination as me um and i don't know about you I mean, my combination I ended up with was King, Juice, and Jack, which, from what I understand, is very unorthodox. What about you? What did you guys? Which, which three did you kind of end up being as your preference? Yeah, so I mean, really, with each mission, my team was a little bit different, just because I knew there would be different requirements I wanted my team to balance. But whenever I could, I would typically use Queen, Trey, and Ace. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, my my reasoning behind that was um. Queen, out of all the other teammates I had, it seemed like her AI just worked real well with the battle. I was like, well, Queen's good with magic, both healing and offensive. So if I ever need that, because certain bosses are weaker to magic, I've got her. With Ace, he's I've always seen him as a, mid, a mid-range character. Uh, he's very quick. He's good. Uh, if you got an enemy that's jumping around and attacking, Ace can typically keep, keep up with that pace. Trey was long-range, but he could charge up his shots. So you could get a ton of damage just with one hit yeah and i think i think that that, and that's really the for this the beauty of this whole system because like i've known people that 
they love using eight for example because he's like really close oh, in why? your face and do like like build up the damage <laughs> Uh, and then you've got people that, um, actually people like using sync. Now, I mean, to me, sync is just a worse version of Jack. I agree. It, it, like there's, there's certain people that just love using REM and there's certain people that absolutely like just say that seven and, and size are their favorite characters to use. Whereas I just, I couldn't get on with them really. Someone who I was playing with recently, uh, whenever he would create a team, he always had, Rim and eight. And I was like, why, why are you using those two characters? And he says, well, they're the best ones I've used. They work really well. These characters are very strong. I'm like, are you sure? When I used them, they weren't strong. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they were a hassle. I avoided them like the plague. But he used those and he was good with those guys. So yeah, everyone has a very uh, different style. And that, I think that's the, the, the real beauty of this game. The fact that the, the play styles were so distinctive that like, it didn't matter what kind of play style you wanted to use. You would find something that worked for you. And, and then go forward. I mean, for me, I, the first time I ended up using Jack was in one of those pressure situations where it just got thrown on me. And if you get Jack, he moves incredibly slow. He is not versatile in any way whatsoever. And then when you get that thrust upon you, he is so different to all the other characters that it's just really confusing. But I think I started using him in the arena just because he was so underleveled because I never used him. And I was like, well, there's got to be a way that he can be useful because when you whack someone with that katana, he does some damage. And then I figured out that was actually his mobility is just you evade constantly, get up, close the distance, and then smack people. And he counters, so he's a, he's a counterattack character. That, that, that's the same tactic I've I've seen used when I actually was on the very first level and you're first and you're forced to use Jack. I died so quick. I mean, I was constantly dying over and over because I had to use Jack. Finally, I was like, "This is stupid. What am I doing wrong?" And I went to the forums. And they said, yeah, he's actually the most powerful character. It's just that you don't understand how to dodge yet. If you can dodge, you'll destroy anything in your path. And after that, I started to see the value. And I was like, yeah, he slows molasses. But as long as you understand how to do the dodging and you're paying attention to how the enemy attacks, you're unbeatable. Yeah, he, he is he is the by far the strongest character. But I think my preference, my favorite character is always King. Because he can exploit the kill site mechanics so easily compared to anyone else, and it's a it's a bit cheap, I will admit. And I when I went through the game, basically I completed the entire game just using King, uh, and then Jack if I felt like switching around for some fun. But well, in all honesty, uh, I found the most value in the shooter characters. I mean, like you say, Kinky's great with the kill shot. Um, Trey kind of like the sniper, one shot but a ton of damage. And then you have Cater, who even if you're not trying to do it manually she's always charging her shot you know she had her own value yeah. too yeah and i think um to me the by providing such a, a wide range of characters it meant that the difficulty was really kind of up to you i felt there was a very good balance between skill and level so you could actually get through a lot of the game just by the your skills as a player because it was kind of a real-time combat situation, because there was so much emphasis on evasion and using the kill site system, which we'll go on to in a bit in a minute, um, you could actually get quite far in the game with very limited levels. Like you didn't, there wasn't a mandate that you had to level. It, obviously, it made things easier. You take less damage when you got hit and things like that. And there were certain instances in the story where, if you had too much of a focus on one uh, one character, it would screw you over. I, I've just forgotten his name again. Um, I called him Tempest in the last thing. Oh, Trey, what's his name? Eight. Nimbus, that's it. Nimbus. Nimbus. Do you remember the mission where Nimbus just comes down and kills your character? Yeah, yeah, you can't really and get an S-rank mission like, with well, that one. Well, what the hell? And then if you just focused on that one character, Nimbus just comes down and kills him, mm -hmm. then you've kind of shot yourself in the foot for the rest of that mission. I mean, I really tried to make things difficult for myself, and I, I like a good challenge. So, I mean, there's the different um, the different missions you can do. The expert trials, which they don't recommend you do until your second playthrough, or at least you're a very high level. I was trying to do those at level 20, and I was adamant that I was going to do them because I really wanted the rewards. And I thought, well, you know, it's, it's available to me. Why not? Why not give it a go? And I could get quite far using the kill side mechanic and the evading. If I got hit, it was one hit KO for me. But, you know, I, I enjoyed the challenge. And I was pleased that they made the game to the point where that level of challenge was there. And if you didn't want to go down that, that route, you could just 
grind your characters up, get the levels higher, and then you'd have the challenge that way. And and that's basically what I did whenever I found out about these harder optional uh, missions because I, I knew there were good rewards to them. And so, you know, there were a couple I just immediately went into, got decimated. It's like, okay, let's train, let's level up. And uh, what, what I enjoyed was not only was it challenging gameplay, not only do you get good items, but uh, more often than not, the cutscenes you would get with these missions uh, really added to the story. It made it more uh, fleshed out, made the whole experience more satisfying. Yeah, definitely. And I think overall, it was a really good system um, for like making sure that there was plenty of stuff to do all the time and that the gameplay just challenged you like okay so you're doing okay in the story missions well here's some harder missions if you really want to test yourself let's just see how good you are and also i believe that uh they actually gave you the ability to change the difficulty at any point in the game um like the the for the story missions and everything so i mean like the kill site mechanic is is kind of we mentioned it a little bit it was actually i think a really good system for in uh, kind of pushing that skill aspect of the gameplay so it means that Every character that you're every every enemy you face has a weakness. Generally, they'll do an attack, and there'll be a moment during that attack cycle when they're weak, and you can do an instant kill on them. Or uh, if it's a boss and it's got a much higher health bar, then it will be a break. And it meant that yeah, you could go through incredibly hard levels and still instant kill everything. And it kind of it was very gratifying because yeah, you die in one hit, they die in one hit, and you'd often be facing a load of different enemies and. And I really enjoyed the kill site system. Obviously, with certain characters, it's easier to do than others. Mm-hmm. That's why I had a preference for King, because King, <laughs> it's a bit cheap. But yeah, like because he fires so regularly, you're always going to get a good shot at a kill site. You've just got to make sure you can evade very quickly. Yeah, and uh, for, for me, at least, there, there were times where I actually relied on the kill site. There were, it might not even be bosses. It might have just been certain enemies that give me a hard time. If I had a fast attacking character like King, you know, I can take comfort in the fact it's like, okay, just stay patient. You'll get through this section. You can move on to the next one. So for me, uh, kill site was a godsend. I, there were times I really did rely on that thing completely. Yeah. And actually, um, it's when I, I, I really hate leveling in RPGs. It's one of the, the, the things I absolutely loathe, especially like now when I don't have as much time as I used to in my, in my, in my youth. And I actually, you know, right at the end of the game when you're just before you fight the Arbiter and you have to do those four challenges? Yes. And one of them is Gilgamesh. And um, I I kind of went into that and I went in with my team, King, Deuce, and Jack. And up to that point, Deuce had been pretty good at healing my characters so they didn't die during the whole segment because if they die, you can't bring them back. Um, and she'd done a really good job of that and Jack was good. And, and I obviously had like the, the long range, close range balance because there's nothing more frustrating than going to a mission and then you have to hit something at range and you don't have a ranged character. Right. That is a real pain in the ass. But I ended up fighting Gilgamesh just solo with King because he would just kill my other party members because I was so under leveled. And the easiest way for me to do it so that I, because I knew that if they died, I wouldn't be able to get them back. I just did King, I'd use King by himself to beat Gilgamesh at about level 25 or something. Mm-hmm. Like, something ridiculously low. And, yeah, it was a one-hit KO for me. It's kind of like playing Dark Souls. I, I I was just thinking that. Because I have been playing Dark Souls 3 recently. Yes, it's that, that same necessary skill. It, it's not that you're under-leveled. It's that your skill is not where it needs to be. If your skill is where it needs to be, it, it doesn't really matter what level you're at. It just needs patience, and you need to know patterns. Exactly. So I just, I was like, I can beat this guy. I know I can beat this guy. I can beat him with King. I, can't, I wasn't too confident about doing it any, any other character, but I was like, typically you would always want to go in with a full complement of people because they'll help you out. But I just I took everyone else out. Just mano mano, King versus Gilgamesh, and King kicked some ass. I will tell you that now. Well, what if I told you, Mike Sousa, our you know gaming union news writer, as we were playing this, mm-hmm. he took out Gilgamesh in that area with eight. In about 10 seconds. What? I am not lying. I was ashamed of myself because I could only beat him with King. And it <laughs> takes me like 15 minutes. And he just runs up to him. Pop, 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 pop. Falls over dead. He wasn't over leveled either. Falls over dead and moves on. So th- th- this just adds on to the what makes uh, Type 0 so great is that there is a character for every person's play style. You can master a character, like any character, even characters you think that suck. They can't be mastered to destroy anything in front of them. And that's, yeah, it's, it's what's really great about it. And 
I think with the amount of stuff that they tried to do as well to kind of supplement things, like um, in each mission you had special orders where, and you can turn them off if they get annoying to you, but the game would challenge you in some way. So they'd come up and you'd get like a little comms message saying, if you can do this in this time limit, we'll give you a boost. But if you can't, you die. Yep. So, like, all right, well, because you start off doing them because you're like, yeah, it's a challenge. And then you realize actually some of these challenges are quite hard. And then um, I think you can also evade the death. Like when the time comes out, you, death you comes can for you. because yeah. the, the, there is a trophy to actually do that. And th- I thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, the, the those SO missions, at first I used them quite often, not necessarily to get like that little potion or whatever, but because my guys would get that buff, that buff would be worthwhile. But then it got to where the SO became kind of what I consider an annoying text message because it was constantly popping up in the middle of battle. You had to stop your fighting and select yes or no. If I was like considering half of these kill me instantly because I can't do it, I'm turning off the annoying text message. You know, I'm, I'm moving on. And it's the same as well. There was um, something that was new that was added into the HD version called SP support. And so um, in the Japanese one, it was a, a different system, but... Uh, where you could have like a buddy system. So they kind of tried to do the same thing. Uh, and if you have SP support in place, then you actually get members of the the Type 0 development team and other Square Enix members coming in uh, in place of your team. So if you're really worried or maybe you're underleveled and you think, okay, I'm going to a mission and I think that some of my characters are going to die, then you can bring in SP support and you might have Tabitha fighting by your side. And um, they're usually quite high level as well. And if they die, it doesn't count towards your groups casualty total but it will count towards a casualty total for the entire mission which was yes and no in terms of like the greatness of it but the good thing about it was that you could if you use these characters and actually did stuff then you'd get ssp which you could then use to buy items which were good such as kings which not only was i think it was was death penalty ah Um, yes good old tribute to vincent vincent's weapon there but it was not only did it um give the kill site like 60% 60% of the time or something it improved the the rate where you could just instant kill things right. just from firing and again king just spams the crap out of things so you could just insta kill stuff even with a kill, without a kill site it was great you know i'm starting to think you're quite the king fanboy i mean even your haircut's got a bit of a kingishness to it yeah so you just need to throw a little blonde that, in there uh, but i i did enjoy the sp support because for the first i want to say Three chapters of the game, you know, I was still getting adjusted to certain mechanics, uh, certain characters, but they would be at such a higher level, even if they may not kill something instantly, I often didn't have to worry about them dying. Now, later on, it got to where, as missions got harder, it was like, okay, they're dying just as often. It was a often. bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, and th- thankfully, there's other ways to earn SP. You know, you could replay chapters to do that. So, but for the beginning of the game, at least, it was a, it, it was like a non-intrusive helping hand that I was very thankful to have. Did you ever end up using much of the magic? I mean, because of the characters that I used, I, I rarely ever use magic. I didn't really delve too much into it. I mean, there's a whole like Alto Crystarium system and I just didn't, it just didn't really resonate with me that well. Okay, so as far as leveling up magic, I didn't focus on that too much until the last couple chapters of the game. When I did use magic, it was usually for my long or mid-range characters. I would throw up wall. That was very useful, especially uh, during the training missions. Uh, the magic is, in terms of offensive magic and healing, I just left that up to the AI. I mean, if, whenever I took a team, I made sure at least one person had, uh, healing magic, one other person had offensive magic. The AI typically handled that well itself. I've just never been in any Final Fantasy game a very magic focused person. Uh, just because I hate having to manage my MP. But, uh, so, yeah, it, I left it up to everyone else to use it. I did level up occasionally, but, it was an afterthought. Yeah, I think that's the that that's kind of how I tried treated it as well because uh, magic's kind of used universal across characters, so you can equip whatever magic you've learned to any character. I think, um, but some characters just have such limited MP pools that it's not worth it at all. And then, yeah, like someone like Rem, uh, who's m- much more magic focused, I I couldn't really get on with her melee style, so I just didn't suddenly think, oh, I'm just going to use her specifically for magic. It just didn't click and so yeah i ended up kind of doing the same thing as you like I, that's why i do in my party because she'd had her through bard spells and then would, would use curative magic as well i just didn't have to worry about it it was just yeah it's just like a weird afterthought yeah I, th- I think it's funny you had the same issues with the ram as i did because uh, i was like man these attacks are horrible but she's great with magic but of course she's under leveled so we want to do those optional missions where she has to be level 50 you're like well crap 
I guess that's for the second playthrough. But, uh, yeah, uh, mostly I, I left the magic to Deuce or Queen. They tend to manage it very well. Like I said, it seemed like the AI just flowed better with those characters. Yeah, and on the AI, actually, I didn't... I think there were certain parts where it kind of bugged me. I can't remember the exact place, but I think it's in Militess where um, you're trying to run away from the like the weird zombie guy with a big uh, great sword. Yes. And um, like they just kind of die because they're just stupid. But I think in most of like the random battles, they generally did a really good job in terms of like they just did what they needed to do. I didn't ever have to worry about them that much. I mean, sometimes they died, but that's generally because they were just underleveled. Yeah, uh, o- overall, I was impressed with it. The only other experience with um, Final Fantasy AI I've had was uh, Crystal Chronicles Rings of Fate. And I don't know if you played that one, but until you're about two-thirds through the game, your AI is absolute garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I will tolerate you, your bashing of Crystal Chronicles because it's, hey, Rings of Fate it's not the is one of my Crystal favorite Chronicles. DS games. The original Crystal Chronicles, I never had a GameCube, okay? So I'm sorry. It's okay, I forgive you. Thank you. You've redeemed yourself. Yes! Uh, but this next point, I think you're going to not redeem yourself because Uh-oh. you're going to talk about the real-time strategy game. And um, I I kind of appreciated what they were trying to do. It was a nice mechanic that flowed in with the story. Okay, here's some conquest stuff. But it's like probably the most basic real-time strategy simulator I've ever seen in a game. And I think the thing that summed up for me, and I'm going to let you defend it in a second because I know you want to, but the thing for some doubt for me was the fact that you have the option to skip every single one of these RTS segments. Like, it's just that redundant. The, get, the developers were just like, like, you don't even have to play this if you don't want to. It, there's no benefit. You can just do what you want. It will just give you maybe a bit more context to the story. But other than that, just, just skip it. It's fine. And, and see, here, here's the thing I hate to admit, but I can't really defend it. I honestly cannot. You are right. It offered a little bit of fun, but overall, it did get in the way. Here was my thing. I used to be a big RTS guy, but similar to you, as I've grown up, you know, I got more responsibilities. The amount of time I could play those games has diminished. So now I suck at RTSs. And I'm like, hey, here's this simplistic RTS I don't suck at. So, you, so I mean, really, I can't defend it because it is it is very basic. There's nothing overly complicated about it. Now, I do have an appreciation for it. I think if they would have put more time into it, it could have been something great. I, mean, I was kind of joking with some people before, saying I wouldn't mind a spinoff where it was uh, RTS, but it had, had they put more effort into it, yeah, then I would defend it you know, to no end, but I, I really can't. It, wasn't, it really was an afterthought. I think the thing that bugged me the most about it was the fact that there was a very big, there was a very big reliance on your character's role in like the whole conflict is that you couldn't just win really by saying, okay, I want this base to attack that base. Generally there would be something that meant that you had to get involved and intervene. And it was one of the things where like in the actual game, you could get by uh, with having a low level by compensating with your skill levels. Let's say you could use the kill site system. You could get around it. Whereas in the RTS system, like if your character was under leveled, you just died. And that if you had a melee character as your primary, but you had to try and kill a dragon, it didn't really work. Like, it was just, like, that part of it was just so half-arsed that it was just annoying. And I, I agree with what they were trying to do. I mean, I understand you being the intervening force, that makes sense with the story, because even at the beginning of the game, the only reason that battle was won was because Class Zero intervened. My biggest issue, other than that, yes, you need to have a long-range character pretty much in every one of those missions, is the fact that if you attack an enemy and you don't kill them instantly, they don't flinch, but when they attack you, you flinch, and that's like a good two seconds you've lost. And it got to where the only way I could complete an RTS mission was if I had a tray and he had several charge shots he could use so I could one-hit KO enemies. Otherwise, the battle got drug out. I was constantly having to heal. So yeah, that, that was a very uh, noticeable flaw in the uh, RTS system. Yeah. Another um, kind of, not necessarily gameplay, but the questing system. Um, it was, I mean, it was fun. Uh, I liked some of the quests that they had you do, especially in some of the towns and stuff, but it just seems so dated in terms of like the way it was set up. You, it, it's one of those things where like, I know it was a PSP game, but I just really wish they'd modernized some parts of it because, I mean... In case you're not familiar with the quest system where you just don't remember, you can only accept one quest at a time. 
you never know what reward you're going to get from that quest. So you can accept a quest and go, yeah, that's great. And then you can go off and then um, do the quest, come back. You've wasted six hours of your day to get a potion. It's like, oh, great. Well, thanks for that. Or the, and the other thing that annoyed me the most was because you can only accept one quest at a time. You might be in the middle of doing a quest, go off to the middle of nowhere to do that quest. And then when you're in the middle of nowhere, you see another quest that you're like, oh, yeah, no, that would be a much better one to do. And then you accept that one. But then the other one you've just completed but haven't gone back to collect the reward on has now cancelled. It's like, why would that? Why would they do it that way? Well, well, something else horrible. Something else horrible I noticed was that, um, and I think this is part of them trying to push you to do multiple playthroughs. There are going to be certain instances where you cannot complete all the quests, even if you know where they all are ahead of time, even if you have a little... um, if you have it all planned out, you're like, okay, I'll go here, here, here. That way I don't waste my six hours. I can go back and do this. Even if you do that, on your first playthrough, you're not going to get everything. And if you don't have enough um, foresight, you'll end up missing on optional things that happen later in the game because you did not complete very specific quests in the current chapter you're in. And that, that was it basically made to where, unless you had access to the forms or the guide, you were going to miss a ton of stuff the first time. And some of it's story-related. I mean, it adds to the story. They could have got around that just by allowing you to accept multiple quests. Like, there's no reason why you can. You only have to accept one quest at a time, other than maybe, like, limitations of the PSP. It's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, well, I mean, we're in the age of, you know, post-Skyrim, to where you can accept a million quests and then actually get around to doing them and not have any uh, negative effect on you or the game. I mean, I, I don't think... PSP limitations is a valid excuse. Well, it's PS4 limitations, really, isn't it? Yeah, you know, even now we don't. Yeah, yeah. All, all the more reason for them to not have that excuse. I mean, you can't. It's a load of crap. No, that it could have been avoided. Why they didn't go back and fix it, I don't know. Maybe they didn't get any complaints about it in Japan, but it, it should not. That limitation should not have been there. It was ridiculous. It did suck the fun out of um, finding more quests. Likewise, I think uh, with with academia, like I I enjoyed academia as a place. Like you can walk around it, and there's lots of stuff to do. But it was a pain in the ass at the same time. Uh, the camera, which they did actually end up patching after release, I believe, was just kind of nauseating to start off with. And again, like I know they were trying to translate from the PSP, where the camera system is going to be very very different because you've only got one analog stick. But like, how did they not play test that and just think, okay? X amount of people are feeling sick now after walking around academia. Hmm, is there something wrong? Nah, we're fine. We're fine. We're good. Well, what, what, what if I <laughs> Maybe told Maybe people you, won't notice. What if I told you the exact same thing happened months after uh, when they did the PC port? When they did the PC port, it had that horrible camera transitioning issue, and it still took them like a week or so to patch the game. They didn't include it with the base game. It's so baffling, because they must have known that it's a terrible camera. Yeah, well, I mean, th- think about this. this is the country who doesn't like shooters because the way uh, the camera goes makes them nauseated. Well, why would they have this issue in Type Zero if that's an actual issue? Yeah, and I, I, I know that people also have issues with the camera and the actual the combat as well. But I never really that never really bothers me too much. But the camera in Academia was a real sore spot for me, and I think Academia as a whole. I said that I liked the the fact there was lots of stuff to do there, and it felt like that it had personality. It was a life. It was a place that you could call home. Um, but at the same time, they made it so tedious to get around. Like, why do you have to walk from A to B to C to D to get to this place? Or like, oh, you've got to go through a warp to get to that place. So many loading screens, and like the map is the most useless thing ever. It only ever tells you, oh, you have to go here to talk to this person for a mission. Which, like, okay, great. That's that's wonderful. But can you not tell me anything else about what's going on in academia? Like, what is the point of this map if like, it doesn't really tell me anything ever? Yeah, like, <laughs> I believe you mentioned this uh, before we start recording, but you said that it would be nice if there was some little notifier in the map that says, hey, there's something extra in this direction, go here. Oh, hey, here's something required in this direction. Because when I was in academia, I would waste easily 30 minutes just searching for something to do, making sure that I'm getting everything that there is. When if I would have just had a little pointer somewhere that said, or maybe when I get in the warp panel, there's a little exclamation point in the different locations saying, 
hey, there's something here you missed. Come check this out before you go on a mission. You know, it did seem like there's a lot of unnecessary time wasted. Yeah, and again, that just seems like a really old mechanic. Like in, I'd imagine like 15 years ago they wouldn't have had a notification, but these days, like you have it because, like, why? Should you have to make the player go to every single room in academia every single time they go back just to see if there's a little bit of story they might have missed? Just tell them if there's going to be something there and then they can make the decision about whether or not they want to go and see it. Or like if they've got only a finite amount of time, let them make the decision about which ones they want to go and view. But don't make them search every single location just to see if there is something there because like it just makes it tedious and to me, that kind of sucks the life out of the story a bit because, okay, I, well, I've got to go and look at the like the commandant's like military room every single time. I've got to go and check like Doctor Horatio's magic area every single time, and most of the time there's never anything there. So, it's, and then you kind of just think, well, why am I why am I doing this then? Why am I going there if there's never anything going to be anything there? And then the one time there is something there, and you're like, oh, well, actually, this is quite interesting. Well, why is it not there more? Like. It just, it just seemed really strange that they would just make it so tedious. Did you also notice that some things don't happen unless you have a specific character uh, as head of your party? Because that does happen. Yeah, and that 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 was a pain because some of it is story related. Um, oh, I, I forget his name, but basically your commanding officer before he's about to go on a mission. There's actually two or three cutscenes you where you talk to him before the mission. But unless you know what's character to have in your main party, you'll miss uh, two of them. And they're actually very important. They're, there's a lot of emotion behind them. And it's the same as well, I think, um, you know, with the different towns that you can visit. Like, sometimes uh, throughout the conquest of the RTS section, you liberate towns. You can go in those towns. And then you might have no idea if there's anything to do in there. Like, most of those, like, the subquests that are in those towns are quite hidden. And it's it's you have to literally go and speak to everyone to find out if there's anything going on in that town. Um, like the Atro, who I mentioned in the last part, the guy who does the Lassie crystals, like unless you go to that town and start looking around, talking to everyone, okay, he has a slightly different character model, so it kind of gives it away. But like you wouldn't know that he was anything special unless you actually went and spoke to him. And yeah, I mean, it's nice that you have the game encourages kind of exploration, but getting from A to B in Type-0, there's no quick travel. You get the airship kind of later on, I think, but when you're using the chocobos, it's just so slow. Yeah, the chocobos aren't uh, quick enough. No, like I mean, if you're if you're trying to get from uh, even with the airship, let's say, okay, you want to go to like the top area and then you want to go to wherever where Lorica was. That's a good couple of minutes, like five minutes to to just walk there, and then you've got all the random battles on the way. And you might go to a town and find out there's nothing there. And honestly, I almost would have preferred it to be something like we've seen uh, with the DS Kingdom Hearts games where you just go on a menu and say, okay, take me directly to this town and we'll just do a mission and return. Uh, honestly, I would have almost preferred exactly. that. Because I, I guarantee you, had had the travel not been so slow, first playthrough, I probably would have had five or seven hours shaved off easily. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's, I think pretty much all the gameplay stuff covered we're doing okay for time i think we've got, i think we've got enough time to bash through the presentation where do we want to start with this do we want to go for the graphics first or we want to do the music first let's save the best for last and start with the graphics okay so graphics you can very easily tell it's a psp game upscaled to the ps4 <laughs> you you can but i will say this it looked far better than i was expecting i was expecting just butt ugly pixelation all throughout. Um, I was expecting every little flaw to appear. Personally, I was impressed with how smooth uh, that game looked. I mean, you can tell some of the backgrounds are just a static flat image. I mean, like when you look at the gates of academia, you could look at that and go, someone painted that on Photoshop. That, that was, you know, yeah. but it still transitioned so much better than I would have expected. I was expecting, because we've had PS3 to PS4 ports excuse me ps2 to ps3 ports and they'd be butt ugly so you would expect to be all the worse for a handheld being ported to a ps4 but it it actually turned out better it turned out much better than i would have expected i agree i mean as i said you can tell it's very much a psp game it doesn't look like a ps4 game remotely but i think if you have the time 
definitely go and look at some of the comparison screenshots between PSP and PS4 and you will see just how much effort they put into improving the character models. Like it's it's really quite impressive how much detail they added to these different models. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to be compared against other PS4 games on the market. Doesn't really get the same level of treatment as those games do. And I think it, it must have been confusing. Like if you weren't too sure about the history of Type-0, you didn't really have any idea what it was. And you're like, oh, great. I'm picking up a Final Fantasy game on the PS4. This is going to look absolutely amazing. And then you like experience Type-0, then there's got to be a degree of disappointment in there. Because, I mean, like the game, like the actual characters and the setting, everything looks worse than anything in the 13 franchise. Yes, I agree. But something I would say is if, because I personally, I believe people who immediately bought Type Zero, they probably knew the history. They probably knew this game existed. Chances are they probably YouTubed and everything. If you see the graphics just for a moment on the PSP and then see the ones on PS4, you're going to be impressed. What about all those people, though, that bought Type Zero on a whim? Because it was just a new Final Fantasy game on the PS4, or those that bought it on the basis of the uh, episode Dusk Eye demo. I-, I would argue it depends if they've ever bought a port before. If you've bought a port before, I don't think anyone's ever bought a PS PSP to PS4 port. I-, I mean, just in general, because like I said, if you bought any port, you're going to immediately notice the flaws. You're not playing it for the graphics as much as the gameplay and the story. <clears throat> I-, I still believe. Type Zero is one of the better ports I've seen. Period. I mean, I've played the Shelf Colossus port. I've played um, the Ratchet and Clank ports. To me, this has been one of the better ones. Now, if you bought it just for the demo, I don't think you're going to care one way or the other. You you paid, you know, however much for the demo and for the demo only. If you uh, just picked it up on a whim, yeah, you're probably going to have some issues with it, especially if you didn't get the uh, patch immediately. Okay. I mean, I don't think there's really too much else to say about the graphics other than, like... I mean, the cutscenes look really good. And um, they're the, the different in-game cutscenes, like, yeah, the animations are a bit janky. But, I mean, the graphics, like, I think they did a, an okay job in upscaling and generally redoing the graphics where it's necessary. I mean, some of the smaller characters, like, as you've seen in the, um, like, the Kingdom Hearts HD remasters and, the, like, Final Fantasy X HD remaster... They put a lot more attention into the main cast than they do the sub-characters. Yes. So, like, if you go into a town, like, you'll meet people that just are so generic-looking, and they really didn't put that much effort into improving them. And that that's the same case when you play the uh, PC ports. They'll make that main cast look pretty. It's horrible on 8. I mean, it's bad on 8. Your, your cast looks decent, and everyone else looks like someone just threw up pixels on the screen. But on a positive note, should we go on to uh, the music? Actually, no, wait. Uh, there's one other thing we wanted to talk about we should do, which is the voice acting, which I think is a bit of a mixed bag. I agree. It, I think there was some, there were some good performances in there. And I think there were some bad, like not so great badish performances in there. And I think, I mean, from knowing what I know about it, I've interviewed a lot of the voice actors. I know everything that kind of happened with the, with the voice recordings of, of this game. I'm not going to declare all of that now, but I think given the restraints they had, it's okay. I, I think saying it was okay is fair. I mean, there were some I really enjoyed, and because I don't want to talk bad about the voice actors who were kind enough to be interviewed by us. You know, some did better than others. It, it was by no means bad. I have heard horrible voice acting from good games. I think it's just the case of, again, like the standards have changed over time. Like, I mean, don't forget they originally this game. I mean, I don't know. Well, I, I do roughly know when they recorded it originally, but it wasn't like six months before release of the game put it that way and uh so things would have changed in that time you know the people some of the voice actors they had had never really done voice acting before it's like one of their first gigs and um i think because of the limitations they had in terms of the budgets it was it was difficult and other characters like nine they didn't really put the time in to localize his character like okay in japanese it makes sense for him to say yo and hey like all the time but with the english version it was just like what we don't speak like that like you wouldn't say yo at the end of every sentence yeah i mean i I would argue that because of how much japanese uh media i consume some of it i took for granted but some things you know like nine which i don't know i've seen some people who like to say yo a lot like nine but in terms of characters like uh 
what's her name, uh, Sink, who where either she kind of talks like she's um, on some medication or something, or she'll randomly yeah. just go, ah, you know, that, that that's a Japanese thing. It doesn't make much sense in America. And I, I, I do see how that was an issue. They should have put a little more thought into it. But like I said, I don't think there was a person who did bad. I just think that we had a mix between great and okay. Yeah, and I think like and some of the other limitations they had with regards to like they didn't really put a lot of time and effort into the localization of the game. I think that's pretty clear. And um, the voice actors were very limited in terms of they had to match the Japanese lines, mm-hmm. and it meant that the direction kind of suffered as a result because you'd have a um, a sequence where, and I'm guessing if they'd have spent more time on localization, they would have figured out and changed the context of the lines a bit. But you'd have it so that the characters' mouths speak and then they don't do anything and then they speak again. But the English sentence is a flowing thing. So then they end up just breaking it up. So then you get like, hi, my name's Daryl. How are you? So instead of, like, it's just weird kind of how they did it. Yes. And obviously because you had the subtitles on the screen and stuff, it was just, you're reading so far ahead of what's actually happening. And then like the, the splits and the context are like, no, there's not a comma there. Why are you pausing? Like, it... It's it was a bit strange, but I, yeah, I think some of the performances were really good, and I I didn't I did it didn't necessarily detract from the experience. I think like maybe initially it was kind of a bit strange because obviously like you're used to such high standard of voice acting now in most games that it was a bit it was a bit odd. But I think I, I, by the end of the game it wasn't really that much of an issue for me. Yeah, uh, one one other thing I will say about localization. I don't mean to focus too much on story since we are talking about presentation and gameplay. Is that a very common theme we'll see in Japanese games, especially Final Fantasy, is the whole idea of fate, destiny, you are destined for this, you have no choice in the matter. It seems like in other Final Fantasy games, they do a good job of portraying those thoughts in a way for English speakers to understand. In this one, it feels like they didn't. Um, it feels like they're kind of like... It's like they're trying to say, yes, we are puppets, we are this, we are that. But it comes off in such a jarring way. It was, it's almost a, uh, almost takes away from the story what they're trying to talk about. Yeah. And of course, uh, you have it where Makina, he's supposed to be the protective character. Well, if I talked to someone I wanted to take care of the way he talks to Rim, I would have a restraining order slapped on me in about five minutes. Yeah. It's kind of creepy. So, yes, lo- localization needed a few touch-ups for sure. So, anyway, on the music, mm-hmm. which is, for me, a very positive thing, it was it was done by Takara Ishimoto, who, of course, did Crisis Core. Yeah! Um, and he also worked on the Dissidia soundtracks. And I think this was the first time where he really got the chance to shine, because with Crisis Core, he was... I'd say he was beholden to the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack, I mean, a lot of the, well, not a lot, but like a, a chunk of the tracks that were on the Dissidia soundtrack, sorry, the Crisis Core soundtrack were rearrangements of previous Uematsu works. And he had to kind of try and stick with that style. He obviously made up his own motifs, um, which he used throughout. But I think with Dissidia as well, it was the same thing. You know, it's very reliant on existing works that have previously been done with a couple of original conversations, compositions thrown in. I think with Type Zero, is really one of these first opportunities for him to say here's the soundtrack i'm doing it yeah there's a couple of arrangements in there for like the chocobo theme but outside of that it was it was very much an ishimoto soundtrack and i think that there is a definite echo of crisis core in there absolutely like his use of the pianos and the guitars and how again he's kind of created this quote-unquote type zero motif that you'll kind of hear throughout that sounds very much like crisis core you're like uh, if if you remember the uh song that plays when in crisis core they're talking about the dumb apple trees uh yeah, that that you especially hear the crisis core theme right so it, it really was that you hear that it has sound so all many versions it, it brought it brought a smile to my face every time there's so many versions of it, like the happy version and the sad version and a battle version and it's like whereas and it's the same in type zero like you'll hear the same themes going throughout and it's very much an uematsu thing it's how he kind of ingrained like melodies of life is in other themes throughout the game Suteki Dane is in other themes throughout the game and it helps build context and I think um, with the way that Ishimoto did this soundtrack people probably don't realize that there's as many tracks as there are on the soundtrack 
because there's a good like 60 or 70 tracks isn't there i think and it doesn't when you're playing through the game it doesn't feel like it Mm -hmm. and i I would argue that was one issue i had with the soundtrack because you know of course as soon as i could i bought that soundtrack you know i listened to every bit of it one one thing i i guess i would say i would critique about is that some of these tracks sound so familiar that well sounds so similar i mean is that sometimes i don't know if i'm listening to the same song it just happened to repeat itself or something now in, in the game it worked fine but at but i guess we're talking about in-game versus outside listening yeah and i think that's one of my kind of gripes as well because like, you think of a traditional uematsu soundtrack let's say and, and i don't want to keep doing a comparison here but there'll be a battle theme there will be a boss battle theme and there might be like a special boss battle theme like but that's kind of it because and then those themes will just get ingrained in your head like everyone knows the final fantasy 7 normal battle theme and the boss theme final fantasy 8 normal battle theme and the boss theme and then you might get an end boss theme as well but with um type zero there's what, like 20 maybe 15 20 uh different kind of um combat tracks that will play throughout yes or with different kind of motifs and things and it's like i don't actively remember most of them like when i'm listening back i'm like oh yeah i remember that but i don't really remember when it played as such yeah i had a similar experience um i do sort of see that as a negative but one thing ishimoto did with the soundtrack that worked so well in game was that i would argue more so than in crisis core he did a good job of conveying different emotions like if you remember whenever you defeat a boss you're going to expect some kind of happy jingle like it. Da, 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 da. Instead, it's this borderline sad song that's playing, and it's matching the mood perfectly because the three guys you beat it with, like, yes, we won, but they're panting, they're holding themselves up with their weapons. It looks like they could barely uh, move on. Or if you have a very silly moment, that music just makes it all the more better. I mean, he, with, with sad moments, happy moments, melodramatic moments, I think the music hit the nail on the head every time yeah agreed and i think i mean we've got a couple of tracks here my i've kind of picked three and i vermilion fire is one that we shared yes uh i think that's a great track to kind of get you pumping and psyched and then i've picked Mackinac's theme which is it's kind of strange but it's and i guess it was but it was done on purpose but it's similar to rem's theme mm-hmm. like similar instrumentation similar style but i i thought that Mackinac's theme was really good and then i've got the white weapon the battle theme for the white weapon and uh, you went for a couple of different tracks, didn't you? Yeah, well, first of all, what, what you said about Machina's theme I thought was funny because there's actually a track called Machina and Rim's theme or Machina and Rim's arrangement. And yep. when you hear those two pieces together, it's almost like they, they complete each other, I guess. But uh, Which I guess was the whole point, Yeah, right? it, go, it goes with the story, are... you know. But anyway, as, as to what I chose, you know, I also did pick Vermilion Fire. I mean, you know, it's got blaring Latin lyrics going on. It sounds like this is the epic battle. This is the conclusion. How can you not get excited? Uh, there's also Howl of the Dreadnought, which I love for several reasons. I mean, one of them is because you've got that shredding rock and roll vibe that, you know, you'll also find in Crisis Core, you know, because you're finding the giant robot the whole time. Uh, just a good, fast-paced battle theme. But also, and th- th- this one was funny to me, it's a song called War That Withstands in the Way. And what's funny about the song is when I started playing the game, it, it was always it was already spoiled to me that, hey, a lot of people die. I didn't know who, I just knew a lot of people died. Every time I heard the song, it seemed like it was right before a big confrontation. And it starts off with sad <laughs> piano, and I'm like, oh freaking crap, here it comes. And then you get um, violins coming in, it picks up the pace, but it has, it starts off sad, but then it like adds a sense of dread as the song goes on. So every time I hear this, I'm like, okay, I got my fingers on the dodge button. No one's going to get me. No one's going to get me. Did, didn't make a difference at the end, but and, but I just really appreciate that song because it's only like a minute and a half. But it gets yeah, it, it made short. me very aware. It woke me up. It's like, okay, what's around me? What's going on? I would say as also, uh, and I don't know how you feel about it too, but I wanted to give a special shout out to Zero, the um, yes. the main theme essentially, and it bugged the crap out of me because whenever. Even if Ace is just humming it, uh, it comes up with the little PlayStation, you can't record this, yes. which just really ruined the moment. But outside of that, I think it was the perfect theme for the ending of the game. And um, I think Bump of Chicken did a really good job with, with the main theme. It, was, it has like the traditional Final Fantasy elements in there. Um, but I think it was so so emotional 
it was very different from uh, what we've had with a Final Fantasy main theme before. Kind of similar to kind of what he did with Crisis Core, because again, he kind of did Y, I think, um, with that one. And with that, I think it it perfectly blended with uh, the ending cutscene and brings brought out the emotional side of it. So I, I I will probably get hate for this, but um, Y to me killed the moment in Crisis Core. It fell out of place. I didn't like it. But that just made me all the more happy when I heard Zero by Bump of the Chicken. So, I, actually, it, didn't, it doesn't come with the soundtrack when you, you'll get the disc or you download it, so you gotta buy it separately on iTunes. I actually looked up the lyrics to it, the uh, English translation, and even the lyrics fit so perfectly with this game. It's talking about how many have died, many have sacrificed, but the war is over, we can move on now, we're free. It is a very, very touching uh, song. I mean, it's still somber. But that game, not not just with its sounds, but everything about it fits this game to a T. I mean, that they really uh, hit the nail on the head. All right, so in closing, Jared, I'm going to ask you to do this in one word, but you can explain slightly if you want to. Uh, would you recommend Type Zero? Yes. Okay, so beyond my one word, I would recommend it because most people who I know who don't already play RPGs that to them that genre is a barrier for them that they have a difficult time getting into it i believe that type zero because it has more fast-paced elements to it would be a good way to get someone started into final fantasy and even if they never picked up a normal rpg after type zero i believe the diversity in the combat and the story would satisfy any gamer uh, I really feel like this is a kind of game anyone can get into. I agree, and I, I would also say that yes, I, w- I would recommend it. I, I've seen people that maybe have got into it and they don't necessarily know what they're getting into, and I think that's a kind of challenge because it's not like a traditional Final Fantasy game. The gameplay is going to be very different. It's not that ATB style, but at the same time, it's it's got a good story. And I think... If you can get around the limitations of what it is, like it's not a PS4 game, it's a PSP game that's been ported to the PS4. Like it's going to come with some baggage because of that. And if you want to hold that against the game, then you're probably not going to really give it the benefit of the doubt and the chance it deserves. But I think if you can look over that and say, okay, well, okay, I can, some of these deficiencies are in there because of the PSP, and look beyond it and see what the game has to offer, then I think it's a solid experience and. Okay, it's not going to be up there with the likes of Final Fantasy X and nine and seven and eight and whatever in terms of like, oh, this is an amazing game, but it's still a very good, commendable Final Fantasy game, irrespective of the of whether it's maybe a bit outside of what a Final Fantasy game typically is. It has good music, it's got a good story, it's got good gameplay that's rewarding, and um, I think if you want, uh, if you want to kind of be drawn into something it's got an amazing cast of characters and like the mythology and everything is is pretty deep and detailed <laughs> and it's so much down to interpretation as well it's um i, I really enjoyed it yeah well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that i was afraid for a second you're about to go negative on me would i uh well i don't know man it seems like whenever we bring up you know games i like such as <clears throat> 13, I hear more negativity than anything else, man. I mean, it's a real bummer. Hey, hey, hey. I'm I'm not all negative. I just, everything has faults. I mean, even going through the gameplay stuff that we just talked about, we point out a few a few clangers that are in there. Yep. <laughs> that maybe could have been fixed. But yeah, no, I think it's, I think if you if you haven't checked out Type Zero, you, well, you probably shouldn't have got this far in the episode if you haven't played it. Um, but if you have, if you have played it, hopefully you enjoyed it and then it's something that yeah you, you'd recommend to other people as well all right so we're pretty much at the, the final stage of this episode it's been a it's been an interesting one it's a, almost what it's over two hours now we're at the mark two hour mark uh, so music segment it's actually a piano arrangement of zero i have no idea who did it so if you do know then please let me know um i found it on youtube everyone pointed towards a japanese artist who there's nothing really even that person is just kind of it's very vague as to who did it but um yes piano arrangement of zero actually there aren't too many arrangements of type zero material out there uh so again if you find some good ones just ping them ping them my way 
Um, the next episode of Final Fantasy Union is scheduled to come out on the 21st of June, which is after E3. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have some interesting stuff coming out of there. We may do a, a kind of really quick post-mortem episode like um, we did for TGS with Brandon and I. No, wait, it was Uncovered. Maybe? Yeah. We, yeah, we so did a lot of shows and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we might do a little quick show after that um, because there'll also be some Kingdom Hearts news and Brandon's going to be at E3 as well, so... Uh, we'll see what happens with that but if not there's going to be an episode on 21st of June where we're going to run through all of the big announcements if there are any which hopefully there are um, of course if you want to subscribe feel free to check us out on iTunes just search for Final Fantasy we are the number one show in pretty much every single location around the world if you really enjoy the show as well please rate us on iTunes and if you want to support us then head over to patreon.com forward slash ffkhunion and with that Jared I think the Final Fantasy Type Zero special episode has come to a close. Uh, all, all good things have to end, unfortunately. They do. I don't think we've ever done an episode as long as this. Not since the good old days of like episode one and two of the podcast. Oh man, that's really going back, ain't it? That is really going back. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed this, and um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Do you want to say goodbye, Jared? Bye guys, have a good day. And I'm Dara saying goodbye. This has been a FinalFantasyUnion.com production.